Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Today, we are definitely talking about life. Joining me is Mr. Noah Galloway. And before I really introduce him and what he's all about, and by the way, I have wanted to have this guy on the show for a while. He's very inspiring, very courageous. His story is incredible. Uh, But before I introduce him, I just want to remind all the guys to head on over to the Man Talks community on Facebook. We've got over 3,000 men on there. Uh, Ladies, I know it's not, it's not, it's men only, but if you've got some great men in your life that would like to learn and converse with an amazing community of guys, then send them on over to the Man Talks community. It's really solid. We talk about fatherhood. We talk about fitness. We talk about finances, mindset, relationships, like you name it. We talk about it in there, masculinity, what it is, what is not, all those pieces. So head on over and check that out today. Do not wait. So introducing Mr. Noah Galloway. He is a former U.S. military veteran. Uh, Just three months into his second tour of duty, he experienced a life-changing injury. So on December 19th, 2005, Galloway, Noah Galloway, lost his left arm above the the elbow and the left leg above the knee in an improvised explosive device attack, or IED. He was transported to Germany to receive medical treatment, remaining unconscious for over five days. When he woke up on the evening of Christmas, Christmas Eve, uh, he learned that he had lost two of his limbs and sustained severe injuries to his right leg and his jaw. So he was uh, transferred to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. So after recovery, obviously this took a long time to recover. Uh, you know, he went through some some pretty mental and emotional battles. It's not just the physical rehab that he went through. Uh, it is the, you know, the, the knowledge of loss, the knowledge of losing one's purpose. Because up until that point, being in the military was Noah's purpose. And that's what he really felt was his calling in life and in the world was to protect and serve. So after this, he really struggled to figure out what was next for him. Uh, he is now, however, a fitness expert and motivational speaker. So he doesn't take excuses from his clients, <laughs> which is part of his brand, no excuse. And he finds ways to get things done. So he continues to compete. He participates uh, in, in adventure races around the country, Tough Mudder, Spartan events, fitness and competitions, uh, plus numerous 5K and 10K marathons. He's spoken on stages around the world. He has been on ABC's hit series, Dancing with the Stars. Uh, he's been on the cover. He was actually the very first uh, amputee to be featured on Men's Health Magazine. This guy really is incredible and inspirational. So today we're talking about a few things. We're going we're gonna to dive into his story, um, but we're going to talk about how to refine a sense of meaning and direction and purpose in life when one has been taken from us or we decide to move our life in a different direction. So Noah is absolutely incredible and inspirational. And so without any Further ado, I'd like to welcome Mr. Noah Galloway. Thank you so much for having me on. Listen, man, I've been following you for a while now, and a few people on my team and in my community have been following you for a while, and uh, it was it was interesting. I put up on social media this morning that I was going to be interviewing you, and I just got hit up by a bunch of people being like, oh, man, can you ask him this question, and can you 
talk to him about this. It was just, it was really interesting to see like the, the fan, you know, the fanboys and fangirls come out of the closet and, uh, <laughs> and really people that just resonate with your message. So it's an honor. No, that is, you know, to hear that is incredible. You know, you go into something just trying to be the best person you could be, and then you gain attention from that. And so it just blows my mind to this day that people even know who I am and to know that people mm-hmm. were excited and had questions, uh, you know, that, that really excites me. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, listen, let's just dive straight in. I am going to kick things off as we always do here on the Man Talks podcast with, with our opener, with our opening question, which is tell me and the listeners a story uh, about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well, so I'm going to mention something that's I don't think is in my book. You know, with that question coming up, I'm at I, right now I'm doing this interview at my parents' house. I was on the go today running around and I was like, hey, can I come by there and use your Internet and do this interview? So I'm here. And as I'm sitting at their dining room table, I'm reminded of a time when I was little. I come in the house. My dad did construction and he was sitting there and he had you know all this paperwork in front of him and he was drawing up something and, and placing a bid to do a job. And I couldn't have been. 15 years old at the oldest. And I come in and he asked my opinion on what was going on and what he should do. And, you know, what do I think that it would, you know, this is how much it would cost for, you know, the labor for the, you know, for everything, what should he charge? And I gave him my opinion. Now, whether or not he took that doesn't, doesn't really matter. He asked me my opinion. He asked me, he had, he made me think of what I would do in this situation. And it, it made me feel like I was becoming an adult. And it was this powerful moment in my life to have someone that wanted to hear what I had to say. And, you know, I mentioned, I don't know what, if he even took any of my advice, he may not have, but that isn't important. He wanted to hear it and he heard it. And that was huge for me. And I'd look at that moment and I compare it to the relationship I have with my kids. My three kids, I mean, they're children. I don't try to introduce them to things in the world that I don't think they're, they're ready to hear about. They need to be children, but I also respect their opinion. I want to hear from them. I want to know what's going on. Or, you know, if, if I've got something going on and ask them, we talk about things. We have an open conversation. And that one moment when I was younger affected me in how I raised my own children. And I thought that was, I thought that was a big moment for me. Amazing, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's funny how sometimes those past moments, those seemingly probably, you know, for your maybe even for your dad, it was it was something that was just like this passing moment. Oh yeah, I, he probably doesn't even he probably doesn't even remember remember that moment. I mean, because we do things all the time, and we don't know how it affects that other person, and how they will never forget it, and how much we are affected as children and adults by those little moments. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because you were, you, you know, you grew up in, in rural Alabama, which is, you know, very different from the Northern Alberta that I grew up in, in Canada. Some of your insights in your book, uh, living with no excuses really gave me some, some context to what it must've been like to, to grow up in the family that you grew up in. So how, how did your parents, like, how did your dad and how did your mom like really shape what you chose to do with your life, which we're going to dive into here? Uh, well, I mean, you know, my, I have three sisters and then I have my parents and, you know, it's very rare to hear that my parents are still together. Because, I mean, it's very common. Divorce is very common. They're still together. Sometimes I wonder why. I think sometimes they wonder why. But (laughs) they are together. (laughs) We, you know, between them and my three sisters, we have our differences. 
And we also are so similar that we drive each other crazy. But we're all very open and communicate. And that's one thing that I see different in our family to a lot of other relationships and families that don't communicate well. Sometimes our communication is one of the siblings telling on the other, but the communication makes its way around in one big circle and we all talk about it. Because even as adults, one of us will tell on the other. You know, that's not uncommon. <laughs> uh, but we talk. I think that however that conversation starts, it starts. And I think that is a huge part of what has molded me into the person I am today and what keeps our family strong. Yeah, I love that, man. I, I really love that. I'm I'm the oldest of five. I didn't grow up in one of those families that stayed together. I have, you know, two separate families with with four younger siblings. And it is such a interesting dynamic to see, you know, these two functional families and how they operate. And and I, I love what you said there about, you know, even though we're adults, that that type of conversation still comes up. So <laughs> Telling on each other, I love that. It's like we, yeah. you know, we can we can grow up, but there's parts of us that never leave. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, we there's always. I mean, I've done it too. Where you go to, you call your mom. Hey, let me tell you what so and so did. Or you know, and it's we're basically acting like children again. I mean, you still do it, but it's just a way of life, and it's it's good to have that. And then you talk about having separate families. I'm divorced. My children have two separate families, but. What I'm proud of is the fact that I get along with my oldest son's stepdad and their family and their other children and everything. So I try not to break that that circle, even though that circle has gotten larger. Mm, yeah, very, very cool. And so let's let's kind of move forward a little bit. And, and, you know, I would love for you to unpack for the listeners a little bit about your personal journey after high school and, yeah, you know, it, leading into your adulthood life and, and what sort of called you to to join the U.S. military. Well, I'd, I got into like I mentioned, my dad did construction and I got into doing that. And at 16, I dropped out of school. You know, I wasn't looking into the future. It wasn't the best decision I made at the time. I just know I had a moment where I was making money over the summer. Then I was in a classroom and not making any money. And I decided to drop out of school and I started working. I did that for several years, moved out, got my own place, and then decided to get my GED and scored real high. And they convinced me to go to college. And I started going to school at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And that first semester is when 9-11 happened. And because of 9-11, I dropped out. I joined the military. And it wasn't uh, a career decision. It was just me wanting to do something for my country. I knew we were going to war. And once I got in, I absolutely loved it. So from there, I didn't want to do anything but serve in the military. And once I went to combat in 2003, it was either going to be combat or death, just that, you know, if I kept deploying, I was happy with it. If I was killed, it was just part of it. And I was completely okay with, with doing either one of those. Yeah, in incredible, man. And so it just like from a personal perspective, and I think, you know, maybe for some of the listeners that because, you know, we have a lot of people from all over the world that tune into this. And I think as maybe Canadians or people from the UK or Australia Help help those types of people understand why it was so important and why you sort of felt this calling to join the military and why like did that did that bring a sense of of purpose and, and meaning into life for you and and what well yeah, exactly so because you know nine eleven I'm in Alabama 
So I'm not in New York when that happened, but I'll watch it live on the television. You know, I remember watching that the one twin tower on fire and everybody's worried about everyone in the in the building. And then I watched with the rest of the world as that second plane hit. And I remember the screams around the camera guy. And it, it was hard to watch. And then you hear about, you know, the Pentagon, you hear about the plane going down to Pennsylvania. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And then I went for a run and that's where I decided I was going to join the military. I was, was just, I was 20 years old. I was physically fit and I just needed to do something. I mean, there's, I have a lot of pride in my country, you know, in the human race. That was just something horrible that happened to happen to anybody. It doesn't matter what country it was in. I mean, the amount of people that suffered and I wanted to be part of the retaliation. Now, of course, in 2003, I go to Iraq and we could have a whole podcast of debating whether we should or shouldn't have or what happened. The thing about being in the military and being in combat, when you're there, nothing else matters. You know, you're worried about your buddies to your left and your right. We've all heard that. And it's just all about being part of it. Now, one thing I'm not afraid to admit, I like adrenaline. I like that experience doing something that most people can't. And while I was there, I got that fulfillment. So, I mean, I felt like my purpose of finding the most exciting thing was it and and serving my brothers. That's what was important to me. There was no politics involved. It doesn't matter where we were. It was all part of the excitement. And that's where I found mm. comfort. You know, I found peace in combat, as crazy as that sounds. But it was being part of a unit, being part of a brotherhood that you just don't find every day. And I loved it. Yeah. No, I, I think that's incredible. And I love the way that you described that there, because I think far too often we can make it very, very political and to sort of distill it to its essence about that calling that you felt and that sort of, uh, you know, autonomy, that sort of like freedom within the the, the tribe and freedom within the, the infrastructure really does make sense and, and being a part of it. It's, and it's interesting, right, because here I am a Canadian sitting in New York right now and I've had the opportunity to, you know, walk the grounds at the World Trade Center where the, you know, memorial is and and to find myself now living in New York, I, I get it. I have a much deeper appreciation for for it as somebody who's a foreigner who, you know, maybe when it happened was horrified and was just like, I can't believe what that, you know, what that must be like. But to have a different appreciation for the call that that you must have felt. So walk walk me through a little bit a little bit more. So you've you've been deployed. You go through, uh, you know, your time. You you start to build this bond and this brotherhood. You've really sort of found a, a deep sense of of purpose. And and uh, you know, I'm assuming that this you, this started to become a bit of your identity, or started to become your identity. Uh, you know, after spending some time in the military, and you get deployed to Iraq. You come back home. Uh, do you already are you already married right now, or have you started to build a family at this time? Yeah, so I, I was married before my first deployment, and when I came back out of that first deployment, you know, I, I think to say that I was different, most people have that dramatic sense, like we see in movies, like I was just this changed man. No, I had found something that I loved, and that was being in combat, that was being a soldier all the time. And when you're deployed, when you don't live on a camp, when you live with the locals, you are owned all the time, and then to come home. It just wasn't the same. 
I wanted to be back in the action. And when I, you know, so when I say a changed man, I, I think I hate for people to think of that dramatic change. I mean, if you're a race car driver and you're used to being on the track running laps for hours on end, and then the next day you're just sitting around the house, you don't think those guys are itching to get back behind the wheel? I mean, it's the same thing. You want to get back out there. And that's what I wanted. I want to get back out there. And because of that, yeah, the wife I had, uh, Brandy, she fell into the backseat of my life. She was not as important, which is horrible to say, but it was reality. I had found this passion that I wanted to work with and I wanted to do all the time. And that's what I did. And I could not wait to redeploy. And during that time in between deployments, we had our oldest son and he had a lot of complications and spent some time at children's hospital. And then when we went home, he had all this equipment hooked up to him. And I didn't have to go back to Iraq because of his condition. But then a month before my unit re- went back to Iraq, he got better. I mean, he was doing phenomenal. And I went up my chain of command to let me go back. Now, I wasn't – the difference on the first deployment and the second deployment, and again, this is going to sound harsh, but my first deployment, I left a wife behind. You know, you leave and you miss them, but then you've got this job in front of you. My second deployment, it wasn't just a wife. It was my son, my only son. Uh, now, of course, like I said, I still went back and I wanted to be there, but the mindset was different. I remember there being moments that were so horrific that I remember thinking, I hope he never experiences this in his life. So it was still in my mind, but I was still in this position where I did not want to change who I was. I was a soldier first and I was trying to do the best I could. And of course, then on that second deployment, I was injured. And don't remember any of it, was hit by a roadside bomb, woke up five, six days later in a hospital to the knowledge of the fact that I'd lost my left arm and my left leg and had all these other injuries. My jaw was wired shut. And it was, I'd mentioned early on that as I deployed, I realized all I want to do is go to combat or die. And that's how I felt. There was no in-between. I was not prepared for the in-between. So waking up in the hospital and suddenly I was in the middle. I was not injured and I could not deploy anymore. I did not know how to react to that. While I was at the hospital, you know, it was, it became too much. Leading up to my injury, uh, my oldest son's mother, like our marriage had just fallen apart. So it had ended. So my sisters brought my son to see me at the hospital and I remember that moment of seeing him and just the emotion that came out because then suddenly, and he was good for me. He was a reminder that I had something else to live for. Yeah, I was injured, but I had something else to drive me forward. Now it wasn't, it didn't just fix everything. There were still a lot of mistakes I had to make and learn from, but there's that first moment of, okay, you're not in this alone. And my son was that motivation for that. Mm. That's incredible, man. It's it's interesting to hear. I mean, after you talk about that in between space, and I, you know, obviously, I think a, a lot of people might not have the same experience as you, but they have a sense of transition in their life, right? Maybe getting let go of a corporate job or having a divorce all of a sudden pop out of nowhere where, you know, they're expecting to be in this great relationship for the rest of their lives. And their partner sits them down and says, listen, I'm done. I'm out. I'm leaving today. And all of a sudden there's sort of like this 180 that happens. 
Tell me a little bit about your experience in that space, how you tried to cope with it, whether that's, you know, in the in the positive and the negative ways and and some of the lessons from that transitionary phase, because anytime that we and I've been through this before, too, anytime that we lose our sense of purpose, which it sounds like you had such a clear sense on and anytime that we lose our sense of identity, which, is, again, it sounds like you had such a clear sense on it can be so crippling and, and, and like just heartbreaking to try and move forwards. And so I would love for you to unpack a little bit of that space in your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it will. It'll shut you down. Uh, that in between. And that's the thing is, you don't have to have been a veteran. You don't have to dramatically lose a limb or two. That in between. And just like you said, like somebody could, you know, have a spouse leave them or whatever it is or lose their job. I, you know, I was in a room full of doctors one time uh, talking about mental health and that loss of purpose, that that vision of the future that we've created and where we're going. And then you wake up one day and it's gone. You don't know where you're going. And I looked at one of the doctors. I said, if you woke up tomorrow and couldn't be a doctor anymore, what's your plan B? He looked terrified. He's like, I don't have one. I said, of course you don't. Who you when you put all your when you put all your effort into one thing to be as successful as you can, you don't plan to have it fail. So you go all in. And a lot of successful people, that's how they become successful. But then to be driven that hard and have it taken away can throw you down to your mm -hmm. knees and just cripple you. And we see it in every aspect. Uh, it doesn't matter the job, the situation, whatever it is. And that's why I, I've been big advocate for mental health. I mean, sometimes we got to go see somebody. We have to take care of ourselves. Uh, you know, I always tell people if uh, we have heart problems, you see a cardiologist and nobody thinks twice about it. Mental health, the brain is the most complicated organ in our body. And that's what affects everything, our emotions, you know, uh, how we feel in that in between, not having that purpose. And sometimes we have to get that checked out. And for people to be hesitant about it or this be this, this negative image of mental health has to go away. And I think that the way that happens is more people sharing their stories and their struggles to reach out and, and touch the lives of others that are going through it because they have to get help. Because it was for me to not know where I was going or what I was doing. Of course, I, I had this, I felt like I had this purpose with my son, but it wasn't enough to get me going forward on the next mission. No, it was like, okay, I have to keep living. But that was it. And I rushed into a second marriage had two more children. So then I had three to worry about and I wasn't really doing anything except for just living. And where I struggled was I didn't open up to anybody. I didn't get the help I needed when I needed it. And I think there's a lot of people that are living in that world where not only in the, in the middle of life of knowing where they're going, where they're coming, where, they're, where they've been, but they're in the middle of getting help and nothing is happening. And you have to start moving forward. And a moment I had with my children, because I've had people ask me, what was that one moment that turned everything around? And I always tell people there was not one moment. There were several moments that build up to different things. So I mentioned my son in the hospital. There was one day I walk out into my living room and my three kids are sitting there. And I realized I am teaching my two sons how to be a man. And that's what they're going to become one day and showing my little girl how a man's supposed to act. And that's what she's going to look for one day. And that was a terrifying moment for me because the person I was, I was not happy with. And so that was another step in the right direction. Now, things did not immediately change. I still made mistakes, 
but it was the motivation of thinking of my three kids that got me up and going again, going again, and then trying to improve and trying to improve and then getting help and then getting back into fitness and just improving my life, wanting to be a better father, better person. And that's what started to happen. And one thing I noticed as we're talking about that, not having a purpose, uh, I love to tell people, I don't know, you remember the show Married with Children? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, Al Bundy, you know, here he is. You got this this shoe salesman that is miserable with life. You know, he's never happy. The only time he's excited is when he talks about scoring four touchdowns in a single football game. When he starts talking about that, I mean, he's living it back in his mind. You know, he's holding the pose, everything. He's living in the past. And I see this a lot of veterans, and it's not just veterans. This is people in general. We hold on to the past. Now, the time I spent in the military, I'm proud of. I loved it. You know, I loved wearing the uniform. I'm still in contact with the guys I served with, but that was a chapter in my life. I now see that I am several chapters past it. And each chapter, I'm living a new life that I'm trying to be successful in something. And that's where we have to get past that holding on to the past because then we never move forward. And there's a million quotes out there that talk about not living in the past. And I think that just the whole example of Al Bundy showed us that if you live back in the past, life is miserable and we don't need that. We have to move forward. Yeah, I mean, it's such a clear example. And that show is so deep. I don't think people realize how deep that show is. <laughs> no, I mean, there are, a, there are a ton of really great shows out there that, that really show the, you know, the masculine archetypes and the struggles and the feminine archetypes and the struggles that they face as well. And I mean, that's a, that's a perfect example of, of a guy that's just stuck in the past and living, you know, reliving his like high school and, and post high school achievements yeah. as the highlights and, and sort of like crowning achievements in his life. And, and some people do that. You know, yeah. And, you know, Ed O'Neill is playing another character that a little piece of him is huge for veterans. So, in the show Modern Family, I forget what his character's name is, but, you know, he's the, the oldest, the grandfather of the kids who owns Closets, 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 mm-hmm. the CEO and founder. Well, he's actually a veteran. And I read an article that talked about how when they when the writers found out that the character was a veteran, they're like, oh, we got to have a backstory, we got to have this and that. And they're like, no, he's a veteran, but it's not all that he has to be. And I think that's huge for veterans in general, in real life, because too often it becomes this this title that they never move past. And, and sometimes that title is a negative because, yeah, people support the troops. They love the troops. But there's also this Lieutenant Dan image that comes with being a combat veteran. And we have to move past that. So having Ed O'Neill's character be a veteran who served and then went on to be the CEO and founder of Closets, Closets, Closets. That's huge. And here it is. It's a comedy show, just like I mentioned, you know, Al Bundy. But then that little piece of information is really big because we don't have to make it this negative thing that, you know, he has to have this backstory of why he does this, why he does that. Well, it's because he's a veteran. And I think that just like I mentioned mental health and how we have, if we talk about it more and more people come out, it, people get used to it. Uh, the same goes with as me and as, as an amputee, the more amputee, more people that see me or other amputees, they get used to it. Veterans, you know, the more and more veterans see that it is, it can, there's a lot of positive stories out there of successful veterans. Cause in real life, there are a lot of CEOs that have come out of Vietnam alone 
And those are the stories that need to be put out there because these negative stories do not help us. It does not help the image that civilians are given of us. And it doesn't help the veterans to think that that's who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things I want to touch on today is, you know, how do civilians support that reintegration process? Because I think in a lot of ways, it it really is, it really, I think a lot of people just don't know how to support because it's it's such a clear and and sort of like sharp contrast to uh, that transition of having a very clear purpose, of having a very clear intention in life and direction and identity, and then not having that and not really knowing where to go. And I think that, you know, pro athletes face the same thing, right? You, you're, you're, oh, yeah, yeah, you're like a pro, you're a pro basketball player or hockey player, or football player, and that's your entire identity. That's your purpose in life. And then all of a sudden you, you can't do that anymore for whatever reason, whether it's an injury or forced retirement or nobody wants to draft you anymore. And, and all of a sudden you, you're left with trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. And, and I, I would love to just circle back on this from from a perspective of you know the 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 sort of challenges that that you went through because I think there's so much wisdom in in your personal story. Like it's just it's crazy. But one of the things that I love that you were just talking about is this idea of being able to take care of ourselves in, in our own mental health and and really owning that and almost like taking care of ourselves in a way that it's almost like we're taking care of somebody else. I, I read some very interesting stats that talked about the fact that people are more likely to take care of a pet, of a dog or a cat, or, you know, one of their family members than they are to take care of themselves. And that comes down to taking their own medication versus, you know, getting their pet to take care, take their medication. And I thought that that was like completely absurd because you you would think that we would want to take care of ourselves first and foremost, but we seem to have this like apprehension around taking care of ourselves. But if we need to take care of somebody else, that's like second nature, you know, it's just like right there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, though, it doesn't seem that crazy a concept because we we take a lot of pride in rewarding and and putting on a pedestal those who sacrifice themselves for others. And not that people are looking for the attention, but, you know, we're, we're, we love those who do for others. And, and we do. I mean, it's awesome to see people put themselves aside. But then when it comes to their own health, their mental health and people doing for others and not themselves – we get it put in our head all the time. Don't be selfish. I mean, even as a child, don't be selfish. Think about someone other than yourself. You know what I mean? And so it, there's that part of us that would, it makes sense that people would over, would more likely take care of a pet and make sure their pet takes their medicine than themselves because it has been ingrained in us to not be selfish, even though a lot of us can be selfish. It's like we pick and choose what's happening but that can get in our head and affect different parts of our lives. And that's one thing that I remind people, well, you can't take care of anyone else unless you take care of yourself. I have thrown that in people's faces before. I'm like, oh, so you're just going to, you know, that's like, well, you got to die of something. You know, I'm, I'm going to show, I know I'm a diabetic. I'm going to keep drinking these sodas. Oh, okay. So that then your kids will have to deal with you when you lose both your feet. That sounds pretty, uh, you know, because then they're like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. Like, yeah, no, you're being very selfish. And the fact that you are not taking care of yourself and then what can, if I'm not taking care of myself, what can I do for my mm -hmm. children? And then what burden am I going to be on my children as I get older? So you kind of have to flip that script on people to really point out 
that you're not taking care of yourself being selfish. You're taking care of yourself so no one else has to take care of you. And if you're going to do anything for anyone else, you have to be at your best before you can. Mm. Powerful, man. Uh, <laughs> that is, that's really, really powerful. And, and, and I think, you know, you're, you're the example of the person that, that really lived that. And it's, I mean, it's interesting. Like, how did you make it through that hump afterwards, you know, coming back from, from the war and being in that, in being in that position? And, you know, in the book, one of the things that you talk about is, is battling uh, alcohol and, and dealing with that and trying to find your space, trying to find your place back in, in, in society, really, and, and your sort of journey on that. And so can you unpack a little bit of that story of coming back home and, and needing to sort of refine and recreate yourself and, the, and the, you know, some of the battles that you face along the way? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things that happen. And, you know, I mentioned my kids and I always tell people that in life, whether it's, you know, work related, you want to be successful or it's fitness, whatever it is, we're going to come across obstacles. And sometimes those obstacles can be terrifying and it's easier to just stop and say, well, this is as far as I can go. I've done the best I could. And this is it. This is the end for me. Uh, I'm not going to go any further than this. I'm not going to be any fitter. I'm not going to be any more successful. Well, as I was going through my depression, I would hit those obstacles. And I would, I just, I'm just a normal person. I remember moments where I was like, well, this is it. You know what I mean? I guess I've, I've done all I can and I'll just live life like this. But I remind people, you have to have something more powerful than those fears, those obstacles that we face. And my kids became that, where I would come across one of those obstacles, which was more or less my fear. And even though I didn't want to go through it, it was the thought of my children that motivated me to do it. And and I always tell people in life, you're going to face those obstacles. You got to have something more powerful. Not everybody has kids, you know, but you have something. You have someone that looks up to you. You have something you're motivated. You know, I always tell people, if, hey, if it's a car you want, if you want to drive a Corvette and it takes that thought of that Corvette to drive you to make the money you need to earn it, then do it. And then once you overcome that and you get that Corvette, well, then choose another thing. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, because success, all of that is built on having something bigger than your fears, something that will drive you through up and over those obstacles. And I tell people all the time, you got to have that in mind or my three children. And every struggle I went through in that depression, I look back and they were a part of it. They were a mm-hmm. part of getting me through it. Whether it was, you know, a motivation to go get, uh, help to see a doctor, to get back into fitness, to change my eating habits, to work out, to, you know, anything I did. And to this day, I think of my kids, if something comes up, so somebody has an offer for me to, to do an event or endorse something, I think I ask myself two things. How's this going to affect my kids and what lessons is it going to teach them? If either one of those is a negative, then I tell them no. You know, I'm not, I'm not driven by money. Do I want a lot of money? Yes. I'm not stupid, <laughs> you know, but it, it doesn't drive me. Uh, my kids are what's important. No, that's really good, man. I love, I love those two questions. You know, the, the filters, right? Those are really like filters that help to create those boundaries and, and really help you create the yeses and the nos in life. And, and I, I definitely appreciate that. 
Tell me a little bit about about the sort of like afterwards. And, you know, you I know that after in the book, you talk about this time uh, that that you spent some time in jail, which I found really interesting. And I think that, you know, a lot of people would resonate with this a little bit. So what what were your what were your lessons from that from that time? And and maybe just unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah. So I, I spent 10 days in the county jail and it was interesting. It was it was another wake up moment for me because I started meeting all these these guys and hearing their stories. I mean, I was very intrigued. Uh, I had one guy say, what are you writing a book? I was like, I don't know. I might. You know? <laughs> and of course, <laughs> um, I was so intrigued by their lives, their stories. And they, be, they were very comfortable with me and they would talk to me. And, and a lot of these men came from families that were in and out of jail or them themselves were in and out. I met a guy who, you know, as a child was in and out of juvenile detention facilities, and then he ended up in and out of the county. And so it's just this never ending cycle. And as I heard these stories, as crappy as I felt about being there, I remember one night I was, I was in my cell and I was thinking about it. And I was like, I'm not that far down in the hole yet. Like I still can make a change. You know, and so hearing their stories, because I met guys who even the guy that had been in and out of juvenile detention facilities, in and out of the county, this is a guy in his mid to late 20s. And we're talking. And at this point, I'd done some speaking as an injured veteran. And I told him, I said, you know, I do a lot. I do some speaking and I'll talk to veterans. And I told him, I said, there are kids that would listen to your story and connect with it. And you might be able to prevent a lot of those kids from going up and ending up where you are right now. And he was, you know, we talked about that and whether or not he did it, I don't know. But I remember even in his situation, I felt like he could still do something. He could use this. And as I was telling him these things, I realized that I could do the same. And so it's like a lot of times when we, when we teach others, it sinks in more with us. And that's what was happening to me there as I was hearing these stories and talking to people and feeling like I wanted to help them. But then I realized, well, just like we were talking about, I can't help anybody unless I help myself first. And I realized it was doable and that, you know, anything can change if you put in the effort. And that was just another moment of, okay, I got to keep pushing. I got to keep moving forward. I don't want my kids to grow up in in a household where their dad's in and out of going to the county. Who wants that? That's not anything to be proud of. Uh, you know, unless you're able to make that a positive story, you don't want that negative story to be something that any of your children ever mumble out of their mouths. So that was, you know, knowing I didn't want to go back and I didn't want them to have a story like that or follow my footsteps. I did everything I could to start, keep, continue improving myself. Mm, really incredible, man. I mean, it sounds like it's interesting because it sounds like that, that sort of uh, darker time really was part of like the catalyst for planting the seeds that that allowed you to move forward and help people, you know, spending time those 10 days uh, in that county jail and like connecting with some of those people and starting to hear their stories and really understanding that you wanted to help them was how how did you start to take action after that? Because I think that far too often when people are in a tough place and maybe mentally or emotionally, they're really beaten down, it, they can feel like the shame is so heavy and so thick that they can't take action. And so what did you hold on to in that time? Or if there was somebody listening on this podcast right now that's in that space, what would what would be your insight for them? 
you know, so it was, it started small, you know, it's like, I always, I always go back to talking about fitness. I mean, fitness is my passion, but it's just like in life, you know, when it comes to fitness, if you walk into a gym and you're out of shape and haven't worked out in years or never worked out, you can't expect to have one workout or a week or a month or even three months of working out. And you see much of a difference. It takes time. So you're first have to make a goal and being accountable and, and doing it and going. And then you make another goal and another goal. So for me, it was, okay, what am I going to do to prevent this from happening again? What am I going to do to change the way I'm living? You know, because then it be for me, I started using fitness. I changed the way I was eating. So it all starts with little steps. You can, I've seen people all the time walk into a gym. They start an intense workout. They start a crazy diet. And within a couple of weeks, they're gone because they went too big, too fast. And you can't, that is unrealistic. You know, you may be someone who is battling with alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever it is, and that doesn't stop overnight. You know, you have to say, okay, because the more severe it is, and we know what is and isn't, you know, if you're someone who is battling with something that is, you've tried quitting on your own, or you know is not going to be easy, well, then you go to a program. You go to a rehab, whatever it is, and that's you saying, okay, here's my first step. Because then after rehab, rehab can clean you up while you're there. But then once you're out, it's on you. And then it's on you to make the next step and the next step. So it's all about starting small and doing what you can. And whenever I hear people say something like, you know, I'm going I'm to start eating strict on Monday. Here it is. It's Friday or Saturday. And I'll, anytime I hear a friend say that, I'm like, well, then why, why, start, why wait Monday? Why don't you start right now? You know, because if you're going to start it, you start it now. If you're someone that is listening to this podcast and struggling through something, you want to make a difference, the difference starts right now because we can always wait for tomorrow and that doesn't do any good. And you can't take any breaks. You have to, it has to be an ongoing, you have to find that thing. I mentioned my children that are stronger than your fears because you're going to face obstacles and you've got to make a change and make it happen now. Yeah. Awesome, man. I really like that. And it, it sounds like the, you know, it sounds like the next steps for you are really around finding something that gave back to you that simultaneously allowed you to give back to others, which was, you know, the, the vehicle of, of fitness. Yeah. And so how did that come about? Because you've got some great stories in the book that that are, you know, really inspiring around how you started to uncover this sort of, you know, voice inside that was like, oh, maybe I can help people in this way. Maybe this is a path that I could take that would be just, that would be right, that that would allow me to really be proud of my life again. Well, I mean, you're talking about the fitness side or just in general? Yeah, the fitness side. Yeah. So, I mean, fitness, I got into at a young age and just loved it. I mean, once I started doing it, I mean, I, I, I admit to people all the time, I got into fitness early on for one reason only. I realized that girls like fit guys. So <laughs> that was my motivation. But then I started to just enjoy it in general and read all kind of books, everything I could get my hands on about fitness. And to be injured, that was the worst shape I'd ever gotten in when I hit that depression. And to get back into shape and start moving forward. And then to be the guy missing an arm and a leg that had gotten back into shape, people will listen to you because it's hard to have excuses for someone missing an arm or legs. There's a lot of personal trainers out there and it's hard to stand out, but to have an injury and you've overcome and you've found ways to make it work. People, they want that in a, in a trainer. They want to hear that in somebody. And so it became something that I could work with. And then 
it just started to evolve into doing all these other things that I've been able to reach out and connect with people that I never saw happening. Dancing with the Stars, for example. I didn't want to do that show. I'd never seen it before. I don't like to dance. I don't know how to dance. And halfway through the season, people started reaching out to me that I was inspiring them, that I was motivating them. And that in turn motivated me to keep going. And the difference it made in my life, in my children's lives, and in the lives of people that have reached out to me has been incredible. And it was just all about pushing myself, taking the risk, and realizing that it was affecting other people in a positive way. And anything we do that affects ourselves and others in a positive way, you can't turn your back on. Mm. Is that what brought you to, I mean, a big part of your mission, a big part of your message is in around social responsibility. And, you know, you've, you've created No Excuses Charitable Fund. And I'm curious as to how that started to come about, uh, you know, when you started to find this idea of being able to give back to others and give back to yourself. What what called you to, like, where did the No Excuses come from, actually? I'm, I'm curious about that. Where did that really come from, that saying? Well, you know, I wish that I was sitting around and came up with just a, a cool slogan. But I mean, that's something that's, you know, no excuses. It turns out there's a lot of people using it. Other people started using it with me when I started posting things and people would share it and they put hashtag no excuses. Uh, so it just kind of stuck with me. And so then I would use it. So it was not anything that I chose. Others chose it for me because I was taking their excuses away because I, I am missing two of my limbs and I'm still doing tough mutters, you know, uh, marathons, uh, you know, any type of fitness. And I'm doing them with my injury and not letting it slow me down. So I took pride. I do. I take a lot of pride in the fact that people see it that way, that I am pushing myself and challenging myself in a way that a lot of people may quit. And that motivates me. I like I mentioned earlier that in combat, I was driven by the fact that I was doing something I felt like others couldn't. And now, if you and if you lost your arm and a leg, I would hope that you would find your purpose and you'd go and do fine, just like I am. But then on my personal side, I have to think I'm doing what others can't. And that's not something I go around saying, like, I'm doing what you can't if you lost an arm and a leg. But I feel like I tell people all the time that sometimes you have to have that moment alone in the mirror where you tell yourself you're overcoming something that would break others. And that, that gives you that extra boost of confidence to say, I'm going to keep going. Because I, you know, back to fitness, I tell people, so, somebody gives me an excuse of, well, I battle with this, thyroid problems, whatever it is. Well, then you have more of a reason to get back into shape than someone who has no problems at all, that it just naturally, genetically comes to them. You have something to be proud of because you're doing what others couldn't. And I feel like having that sense of pride and confidence. We all have if we tap into it and it takes all of our excuses away. So, you know, just having that mindset and, and being that person, that's where no excuses just kind of stuck with me. Hmm. I love it, man. It really is like a representation of the, you know, the no limits mentality and just not letting anything really stop you because it's led to some, it's led to some really incredible things, you know, like you were the, you were the first person to be featured uh, on, on men's health. Can you tell me a little bit about how that sort of popped up out of your experience? Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah. Cause I was, I was the first veteran and amputee to ever grace the cover of the world's largest men's magazine. And they called me the ultimate guy. So now they've had that competition every year since then. That was their first one in 2014. And that was an incredible experience. I didn't think it was going to happen. I had every doubt in the world that it wasn't going to happen. And then it did. 
And they got a lot of attention from that. They won all kinds of awards. Because of it, I ended up going on Ellen DeGeneres. And that just, after going on Ellen, I mean, the phone just started ringing. And all these people wanted me, Survivor, other shows. But I turned them all down because I didn't want to be away from my kids too long. And I didn't think nobody else was going to call. And then Dancing with the Stars called me. And like I told you earlier, I didn't want to do the show. I didn't want to, I don't want to dance. But the only reason I had not to do it was I didn't want to be away from my kids that long. And they were like, not a problem. Your dancer will come to Birmingham, Alabama, and you'll rehearse there and fly back and forth to LA for the live show. And I was like, well, I guess I'll do it. And it ended up being the better of the choices. Like, I'm so thankful that one, I did it, the amount of tension it got, the way it changed my life, but also the way that ABC, Disney, Dancing with the Stars, the whole crew, everybody, when I got there, Dina Cast, exec producer, said, we're like a family, and they are. And I still feel that to this day, that when I'm in town, I go by there, or any of them I text or talk to, I am so thankful that that's mm. the show that I ended up doing. I like it, man. It, it sounds like it sounds like almost like this family first motto has really guided you in so many ways, you know, in the light and in the darkness of your of your story and the chapters of your life. Is that something that resonates? Like, is that something that you would say to people is, is, is let that family first motto like really guide you? I do. You know, I mentioned that I, I if something comes up, I ask myself, you know, what lessons is teaching my kids and how's it going to affect them? It is family, you know, and I love working with groups that are family oriented. You know, I've seen different, you know, I've had different things come across that sounded awesome. Uh, that there's a part of me is like, I'd love to do that. But then it's like, ah, but you know, it doesn't fit with what I'm doing. And it's like, I've also said, Hey, have you looked into this person? You know what I mean? And maybe they'll, they'll fit that model better. Um, so yeah, when it comes, I, that's just, I like, I love my kids and my family and being someone that is, that is my core. That is what I look to in groups that I work with and the things I do. And I've always joked and said, if that prevents me from being, uh, ever being an A-list celebrity with, uh, you know, a mansion and a Ferrari. Well, I mean, that's okay. That's not what my goal is, but it's also something that could, you know, I'm not letting that drive me, but so far I've had groups work with me because I am that person and who knows where it's going to lead me. I had somebody the day ask me where I see myself in five years. And I told him that, you know, I like being, I like attention. I've always liked attention even before I got injured. Uh, so I love about doing public speaking. You put me on a stage with a couple of thousand people. I'm in heaven. You know, I'm talking, <laughs> listening. <laughs> but <laughs> I I don't know where I'll be in five years. You know, I'd love to be in the public eye, but I may not be. What I do hope is I am continuing to be the best father I can be because that is priority one. So as long as I'm doing that, then I'm doing the right thing because that is the path that I've chosen. Uh, everyone's different in what they have going on in their lives, but that's, that's my path. That's my goal. And I, you know, I've got a friend of mine who does acting and I've done some casting calls and she asked me one day, so are you doing a lot of cast calls? You're working on auditions and you have a, a coach. And I was like, nah, I'm just kind of just playing it by ear. She's like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, I know that for you, this is you know, 20 years of waiting for that big part. She's done a lot of things, but wait for that big part. I said, and that's awesome. But that's not me. If it happens, great. If not, I'm not worried about it. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just a guy that's going through and being a good father and, and you know trying to be the best father and just 
experiencing life and getting this great opportunity to work with some great organizations. And that's where I'm going with it right now. I love it, man. I love your humility. It's, it's so good. It, it's interesting because you well, have... Unless I accidentally pick up a part bigger than she's ever been offered, and then she. Has- <laughs> I was going to say, better watch out. Better watch out for that. Yeah, but I, no, I, I love it, man, because you, you know you you embody that humility, but still have a good amount of ambition without letting that ambition not diminish, but but almost like corrupt your values, you know. And sometimes ambition can corrupt people's values, and it sounds like your values guide you. Yeah, and it can be tough. I mean, I'm I remind myself every day to not get wrapped up in it. That's what I love about the fact that I. I live in Alabama. I mean, I see people in Birmingham that see me and they're like, oh, you in town visiting? I know like, I live here. You know, uh, it's because they don't expect that. But when I do things, I travel. It doesn't matter. If I lived in L.A., I'd be traveling for speaking engagements or whatever it is. I go to New York a lot, whatever it is. So I'd rather be near the kids. And when I do an event, I go, I do it, and I get back home. And it's perfect for me. They know me really well at the Birmingham airport. I'm in and out of there all the time, but I'm with the kids a lot. And that keeps me grounded. I get back home. I hang out with the kids. I drive my pickup truck. And I'm just, you know, your average guy. Well, listen, man, I uh, I would love to sit and have this conversation for like another hour or two. But unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up here pretty quick. So so maybe just can you give our listeners and, and me a little bit of insight into what is coming up next for you? What are you excited about for 2018? Well, I mean, for the, for the upcoming year, I've got a lot of things in the works. Not a whole bunch I can talk about yet. Uh, I'm hoping to be back on on television doing some stuff. And then, you know, hopefully there's something big happening with the book. I hope. Uh, people are reading it, enjoying it, because uh, I put a lot out there in the book to try to touch the lives of different people that are going through different things. Uh, but I've got a lot lined up that uh, 2018 I'm looking forward to. I mean, it's it's already started off going well, and I want more to come. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you and appreciate the work you're doing. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And for everybody listening, definitely go check out Living With No Excuses, The Remarkable Rebirth of an American Soldier. Uh, it's Noah Galloway's book. It It is absolutely a great, great, great read with a ton of great stories. So go check that out. And uh, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes. And uh, do us a favor. Do me a favor. Man it forward. Man this podcast forward and share it with at least one person that you think would love to listen and love to tune in to Noah's story. Uh, and uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.